1: Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile of the podcast. This is episode 184 called Ajima. This episode is supported by Receptiva DX. The Receptiva DX test can help couples struggling with unexplained infertility. Getting pregnant isn't easy as so many of you know. Many couples struggle with infertility and unexplained infertility can be particularly frustrating. Women facing unsuccessful IVF may not know that endometriosis is the underlying cause, a disease that can impact the success rates of IVF treatments and often has no symptoms. The Receptiva DX test can help identify endometriosis before an embryo transfer, and it has the potential to save women the stress, anxiety, and cost of multiple failed IVF attempts. The good news is multiple studies show treatment of women with a positive Receptiva DX test improves live birth outcomes by over 50%. Receptiva DX can detect all stages of endometriosis and help women make better decisions in planning for pregnancy. You can learn more at receptivadx.com or download their app, which is also called Receptiva DX. Today's episode is presented by Belly. Belly offers modern prenatal vitamins optimized for fertility, prenatal, and post-pregnancy health. To learn more about how to optimize your fertility and pregnancy health, check out their vegan-friendly, dairy-free, non-GMO vitamins for both men and women at bellybaby.com. That's spelled B-E-L-I-B-A-B-Y.com. The best part? If you use code Allie15, you'll get 15% off your first month of either Belly Women or Belly Men. Again, that's code ALI15, 15 A-L-I, 5 15, for 15% off. Thanks, Belly. Okay, guys. So today I am talking to Ajima, who sent me an email and wanted to share her story. And she called in from Belgium on our Zoom call. And she's going to talk about her very complicated fertility and family building journey. It starts when her doctor went in to remove some fibroids, and mistakenly amputated her cervix, rendering her infertile. And it also includes another traumatic medical experience when her sister-in-law, who is Ajima's surrogate, became paralyzed after receiving an epidural while she was giving birth to who's now Ajima's daughter. So it's not only a story about infertility and surrogacy and love, It's a story about racial disparities when it comes to black maternal health and the injustice of medical mistreatment and so much more. So without further ado, this is Ajima's Infertility Story. Chima, I'm so happy to talk to you. You sent me an email a little while back that you wanted to share your story and we'll get into all of that. But thank you so much for calling. You're in Belgium, right?
0: Yes, I'm I'm, I'm in Belgium.
1: Okay, so thank you for calling. It's the evening for you guys there. I really appreciate you taking the time. But let's just start at the beginning with you. Did you always want to have kids and be a mom?
0: Yes, I've always wanted to be a mom. I think uh, even while growing up as a little girl, I always dreamt about, you know, becoming a mom. And again, I think also growing up in Nigeria as an African, it's sort of embedded in our DNA as women that uh, when you grow up, you get married and you have babies while the men are sort of supposed to provide for the home. Mm -hmm. So, yes. Okay. So fast forwarding a whole bunch.
1: How did you meet your husband?
0: I actually met him online. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I moved to study in in Italy and I came to visit a friend in Belgium and she advised me to try online dating because I'm not so much of an outgoing person. And yeah, that's how I, I, I met my husband. Was it an instant
1: connection or how did you know that he was the one for you?
0: At first, we we sort of chatted for a bit and He even planned a holiday for us. And then after a while, he sent a message to say, oh, I'm sorry, it's not you. It's me. I don't think we hadn't met at that time. Uh I don't think this relationship would work. And then I I said, "Okay," but then he kept on, you know, sending messages and chatting. And then we finally met Mm -hmm. when I came back to Belgium to visit my friend. Mm -hmm. and then yeah we sort of kicked it off and yeah so it was no it definitely wasn't love at first sight (laughs) But I think uh, because yeah he he's not like my regular kind of person but then what drew me to him is his kindness oh he's 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 a really kind person and uh yeah his love for me and uh yeah. How kind and generous he was, or he is as a person was what sort of got me attracted to him.
1: Oh, I love that. Well, I know yeah. that you guys have been through so much. So let's get into what you emailed mm-hmm. me about. So you started out the email saying that in 2017, you had a myomectomy to mm-hmm. remove some fibroids from your uterus. Was this, so were you married at this point, And had you guys already started to try or was that before? you guys started trying. Yes,
0: we were married at this point. Okay. However, I had the fibroids prior to my moving to Europe. Mm -hmm. And so I just went for a checkup and the doctor in Nigeria said I had fibroids, but it's nothing to worry about because African women in general, like 90% or so have fibroids and they go on to conceive and have kids. So for me, I think the thing that was uncomfortable was the heavy bleeding like during my periods mm-hmm. so that was it and then when i when we got married and I moved here my husband was like when you want to have babies you maybe go and see a gynecologist which was sort of strange for me coming from Nigeria you just get married and you begin to try
1: mm. so
0: yeah we just went to see a gynecologist because not even because I was worried I had fibroid. But because that's what my husband said was normal here. Yeah. Okay. So is he American? No, he's Are he's he's Belgian. Belgian.
1: Okay. Is yes. so. When you were growing up in Nigeria, did you not go to the gynecologist? Is that? Can you share with me how kind of how it is in the culture? Like, is that not a normal thing that a woman would do or a young woman would do? No, I never went
0: to the gynecologist. Mm. Never. Okay. Like it's not it's not normal except when probably let's say you're not seeing your period or you notice you have an infection or, you know, something Uh is wrong. But yeah, we don't normally do that. Maybe in the big cities, they now do in terms of pap smear Mm -hmm. and just general checkup and all. But then my mom is a nurse and a midwife. And we just, we just, in fact, when I went to see the the gynecologist who told me I had fibroids, I called her and I was panicking Mm because he called them myomas. And at that point, I never even knew that was what it was called. I just thought it's fibroid. Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, don't worry. It's fibroid. I had them and I had you guys and, and it's nothing to worry about. So Mm -hmm. for me, I never just, I never let it like get to me. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So So interesting. So tell me what happened when you went in for The surgery and was the surgery in Belgium?
0: Yes, the surgery was in Belgium. So, the first doctor we saw told us that I had fibroids and he's not sure how to handle that. And so, he referred us to another doctor. And so, when we went to the second doctor, who's a specialist in fertility, he told me he wanted to have a surgery. It was better I had a surgery because I think I had one of the fibroids on my endometrium. And the other one on my cervix. So he said, if it's either I had the surgery or he will not even go ahead to to be my fertility doctor and I had to go and I'll have to go to somebody else. So then I said, okay, I was going to have the surgery. My mom wasn't comfortable. Um, People back home weren't so comfortable because they were like fibroids is like a disease common with women of color. And they were not sure that they would be able to treat it well here.
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: then my husband was not comfortable with me having the surgery in Nigeria. And this doctor we were referred to, we were told, is one of the best. So then we went ahead and, and we had the surgery. Uh, it was a myomectomy. Yeah, so yeah, it was a myomectomy, but performed um, in form of a laparotomy. So I was cut open like a cesarean sort of. Because mm-hmm. before we had the fibroid, we did checks. And it was like every time I went for a checkup, the fibroid like multiplied in number.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And at the time we had the surgery, I think I had 12. But then after the surgery, they said they took out 13, uh, 14. Oh, wow. So, yes. So we felt everything went well. We came back home and then we went back for a checkup. And then we went back again. And then he was like, he can't find my cervix.
1: Okay, and he thinks so, my
0: cervix is blocked. Were you in pain? Were the fibroids painful? For me, no, I never had pain, unlike gotcha. others. Yes, I just had a lot of bleeding, but right. in terms of pains, never. I never experienced
1: pain. Okay. So when you went back in. Me,
0: still...
1: Right, right. I know there's it's different depending on you know the <laughs> person. But so you went back in for the checkup and then they couldn't find your cervix. So he thought it was blocked, right? Yes. So then
0: what happened? Uh, then he asked us to come back on a particular day and he was going to put me under anesthesia because he needs me to be relaxed. And then he will try to, you know, find the hole and, and put in a catheter so it can keep it open. Mm-hmm. And so we went back. And when I woke up, I had four holes on my belly. And I remembered waking up. Uh, I couldn't move and I was in so much pain. And I told my husband, I'm like, I don't know, like, do they sew the IUD to the wall of your tummy? Cause I've never talked with about like um, IUD with any friend. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what it was like. So I was wondering, cause I had pains and I've never researched about it as well. So And yeah, while we were waiting, he came and he said, yeah, I couldn't find the cervix and I had to perform a laparoscopy, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: which meant that he performed the surgery on me without prior consent. Mm -hmm. Um, He also told me that he had to perform the laparoscopy because he couldn't find the cervix vaginally. So he had to go in through my belly to see if anything of the cervix was like remaining from like internally, because mm-hmm. then I he explained that there's the internal horse and then there's the external horse. The external horse is the part of the cervix that connects like through the vagina. Right. And then the internal is the one that goes into the belly. But then he said he couldn't find it. And he would be referring us to a, a professor in gynecologist in one of the best university teaching hospitals in Belgium uh-huh. and mentioned that the guy would be able to recreate a cervix okay so basically
1: yes. what happened what What you wrote was the doctor mistakenly amputated your cervix which yes. thereby rendered you infertile so when did they discover that they had that the doctor had done that and how how did you feel when you heard that i mean that was to, you said it was a lot of turbulence which makes a lot of sense
0: yes so after he the way he said it to us casually was like oh you would go somewhere and they would recreate the cervix, right? Mm-hmm. So even at that point, we didn't understand like the intensity of what had happened. Right. You know, and on getting to the professor, he said, oh, have you been on your period? I said, no. He said, why? I said, because we were put on the medication to stop my period because he needs my uterus to heal. He said he found that strange because after my myomectomy, I should be left to bleed. So they would be sure everything went well. And he asked us to stop the medic, asked me to stop the medication immediately. It was luteinil. Mm -hmm. He then told me that I should go back home between five to six weeks. I would see my period and then I should come back. And then I asked him, I said, no, he said he hopes that I see my period and it flows out. So I then said, if I, how do I know when I'm on my period, if it doesn't flow out. He said, Mm -hmm. I'm going to feel the pain. And I said, Oh, usually when I'm on my period, I have no cramps. Mm -hmm. So how do I really know I'm on my period? He then tells me this time around, you're really going to feel it. Mm -hmm. And he said for my sake, he hopes that even if it's just like spotting or, or drops of blood, I have them. So I said, okay. And what if the blood is not flowing? He said, he's not going to talk about that until like he would he likes to he would like to get to that bridge before we cross it right okay. so we said okay and then we left uh-huh. and so five weeks later I felt the cramps and we called and we immediately went back and so when we went back first I was with a doctor a gynecologist but I think he specialized in ultrasound so he checked he went in and checked for over an hour and he said he can't find nothing. Oh my God! And I told him so. What does that mean? He said he would let me go back to the professor, and then we discuss. So I went back to the professor, and then they checked. They went in with a staring like, um, like the staring of a radio, like camera, and they were splashing water. I mm-hmm. think in the hopes hopes that they would see like a bubble. Right. And he had some equipment to dilate, like the the to put like different sizes and twist and twist and then p- push the next big size uh-huh. until they are able. Yeah. Um, so dilatation, I think it's what it's called. Okay. But when they checked and they checked and they checked, he now said we should follow him to his office. And I followed him to his office and we're still smiling and talking and I'm like, okay, um, so now what do we do? He then looks at me and he says, what I've been asked to do has never been done medically. And so it has come to the end of the road for you and I. And oh I said, gosh. I don't understand. He said, you're the best in Belgium. And he says, I'm a very pragmatic person. Medical science isn't there yet. The cervix is a muzzle and it cannot be recreated. Uh-huh. It helps to keep the weight of the baby in. Uh-huh. It um, protects the fetus from infection. And uh, yeah, he said it has several functions. and yeah, he, he then said, I have I have these are the options for me if I want to become a mom or if, if my husband and I want to become parents. Right. My first option would be to do a zift, which is the classical way IVFs were done in the past, uh-huh. like maybe 20, 30 years ago, where they caught you um right by the fallopian tube and then implant the D3 embryo and then Or day one, I can't remember. And then it travels like a natural pregnancy. Wow. I then said, okay, what happens if I have a miscarriage? And then he says, depending on the month of the pregnancy, if it's within a month, two months, then three months, then you're just going to bleed it out like your normal period. You just bleed. If it goes beyond that, then we have to cut you open because you don't have a connect, like the door between the vagina and the uterus is gone. We have to then cut you open and clean everything out. Oh my God. So he said, then that's not an option. Right. He said the next option would be to look for a surrogate. Okay. So basically
1: when they did the cervical amputation, is that kind of the same as like a hysterectomy
0: or is is it like a
1: partial kind of
0: hysterectomy? It's a partial, yeah. Yeah. It's, okay. It's sort of a partial. The cervix is the door between the vagina right. and the uterus, right? Right. So, so it's they, like your bedroom and your living room. Okay. If Let's say they build the bricks on right. the door, then you can't access the bedroom and the person in the bedroom can't access the living room. Let's, okay. let's put it that way. Yeah. Right. So the opening, the connection yeah. was gone. Okay. So okay. Um, he then said that, so surrogacy is my next option. And it was at that point that I knew the severity of the situation. And I just I just started crying and I said, I'm not leaving. They said you are the best, so you have to find a solution. And he said, I can't promise you what I can't do. It's never been done. And if you do find a doctor who says he can do it, they're just going to use it as a guinea pig. mm mm-hmm. And he said, I'm going to be working from the UK next week. I'm going to ask my colleagues if they've handled the situation like this. And he said, by handling, they've had success. If then you would hear back from me. If not, it's the end of the road for you and I. Gotcha. And then I said, but if this, if this is the situation, why couldn't he prevent it? Like if this is common, he said, Mm-mm, it's not common. Mm-hmm. women who are older and have cervical cancer are women who have these issues because then you take out the cervix. Mm-hmm. But in terms of somebody who is like me and young, he hasn't seen right. a situation like that. Wow. So yeah, I just sat down there and I cried and I cried. He was kind enough to just let me cry it out, mm-hmm. but then he had to see some other patients. So we moved to the waiting And I I remembered while we were leaving, like I was just crying. Everybody was staring at us and on getting into the car, I called my mom and I just cried and like, I cried because again, for me, I think most of my, I think my DNA as a woman is being built by my background and my experiences as a Nigerian woman. Mm -hmm. And I feel, or till date, like, I feel like I'm not fully a woman because mm-hmm. I cannot experience pregnancy. I don't know what pregnancy feels like, mm-hmm. you know? And that has been taken away from me. I can never, you know, I, I like the choice to be pregnant has been taken away from me. Right, I would never experience, you know, the morning sickness, the has the kick, my body changing. Like, I would never be able to experience those. I'm so sorry. I just
1: want to say like, you must've felt so violated. And, you know, like you said, you weren't given the choice and you just kind of woke up and you're like, wait, what? Now this this has totally changed my life. So that must've just felt terrible.
0: Yeah, it it did. And, you know, it just felt like, I don't know, like the whole essence for which I existed or like, my woman who had just been taken away from me, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I um I I my phones were off for two weeks. And yeah, I just I I was miserable. I was, you know, I couldn't sleep. I have mm-hmm. I've I've been on um on medications like antidepressants, which helped me sleep, mm-hmm. which I'm still on. Mm-hmm. So it was just really difficult period of time my husband was super supportive and yeah and my my friends and family and again it was super difficult because i lived i live here in belgium which is far away from like my really close friends and Mm -hmm. my family and like my support system and i just had him you know right so yeah
1: that's really hard you were told it wasn't possible to recreate your cervix but then you found somebody who offered reconstructive surgery, correct?
0: Yes. Okay. So yes, I was told it wasn't okay. Another thing the professor added was that I needed to be on medications to put my period on hold, because my body circulating that blood again was was going to be toxic for me.
1: Oh wow! You know,
0: okay. it can cause endo. It can cause endometriosis. No yeah it can cause endometriosis it can cause probably cancer eventually because it's my body circulating like toxic that toxic or the bad blood that I was supposed to to shade out Uh and so that exactly so uh, when we left um, I told my husband I said I want to go to Nigeria to try you know and we went back to the doctor as well who referred us to another professor in gynecology, but in a different university here, university teaching hospital. And he specializes in complex surgeries, like reconstructive surgeries for women, for trans men, mm-hmm. I think, men who want to become women. So he had, Um. he's one of the best, again, in Belgium in terms of, or I think he's even the best at this point. So... But then I told my husband I needed to just go home and, and be around friends and family. Yeah. So we traveled to Nigeria. And if there's one thing I can say is Nigerians are very resilient mm-hmm. and we do not give up. Mm-hmm. So we saw a doctor in, in Abuja who then informed us that, who we asked if we can do a surgery. And he told me my best option was surrogacy. Mm-hmm. So at that point, it sort of, Reconfirmed what this professor said. Even though I had a bit of hope that uh, they would be able to help me find the situation, the solution in Nigeria.
1: Right. We
0: then visited another professor in gynecology, who told me he cannot say for sure until he performs a laparotomy. Okay, and because he needs to see if anything of my cervix was left internally. Now that that would be for him the deciding factor on if I can get pregnant on my own or if we would need a surrogate. But then my husband wasn't comfortable because he had spoke because he he was, he said he would prefer I come back to Belgium and we had the surgery. here. Okay. So then we came back to Belgium. We saw the professor at the university of Ghent and then the professor then tells us that he can try a surgery but he needs us to know that we have between 20 to 30 percent chances of success and um, by success he doesn't mean in terms of me getting pregnant by success he means in terms of me in terms of him recreating a whole, and i just have my period first after which we can then see if i can get pregnant Okay. And my husband asked if I was comfortable with that and I told him of course yes I, I'm I'm very I, I'd like to try everything yeah. humanly possible. And so we went back, we came home, we prepared for the surgery and then I went back and then we had the surgery. Okay. And yeah. after the surgery he came and he told me everything went well. My cervix is completely gone from the inside and the outside, everything had been gone. Mm. However, he was able to recreate the whole, but he um first I have to heal and then we can see when we can begin to try to get pregnant. And I said, okay. So I was in the hospital for three days after which I was discharged. He gave us an appointment to come back 10 days later, which we came back. And then again, I was put under anaesthesia so that no. 10 days later, we came back. He took out the catheter. And then, because I, I left with catheter, mm-hmm. and then he said, we come back two weeks later. So he inserts an IUD. And we left. So two weeks later, we came back. And I was put under anesthesia. By the time I woke up, um, he was in another surgery. And his assistant came to tell us that she wanted to, the professor sent her, sent her to us to tell us that the surgery wasn't successful.
1: Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry to hear that. <clears throat>
0: it's it's so okay.
1: Is this the point where you said that you were broken? Basically you felt broken?
0: Yes, I actually did. Like my husband held me and we cried together. You know, we drove straight to his parents and we just cried it out. And then we came home and two days later, I was on my way back home because I just wanted to be, around my mom
1: yeah, and
0: my, 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 my closest friends. And, right. and I just needed that support system. How far and is Belgium so from home.
1: Nigeria? How, how long does it take to travel?
0: There's no direct flight. Uh-huh. So minimum eight hours. Okay. So yes. That's a long,
1: that's a long way to go,
0: but I get yes. it. You
1: wanted your mom and your people. You needed your yeah. best friends and yes. your family. Yeah. I get that.
0: Exactly. So yeah. I went home and then I, 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 I just, I cried it out and I, my mom just pampered me. I, I didn't do nothing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I was just, she would, uh, they would cook and, and give me and everything was just done. She just wanted me to rest and she yeah. really did take like good care of me, you know? Yeah.
1: And I, I, if you don't mind me asking, how old were
0: you at the time? Oh, uh, I am thirty-seven now, okay. so this was in two thousand and eighteen. Okay. Uh, yeah. So maybe thirty-two. 35. Yeah, thirty-four. Thirty. Yeah, Three thirty-four. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so I went back. Yeah, so so this happened, and yeah, so I can't. And and the funny thing is. My mom and I weren't really close. I've always been like my daddy's girl, but mm-hmm. I think this experience has sort of, you know, strengthened our relationship, to be honest, you know, and I don't know. It just, I, I it just like looking at it from the positive side of it, it's really made my mom and I really close right. and, um. Yeah. So I came back to Belgium. We went back to see the professor and he said, okay, look, we can try another surgery or we can just perform a hysterectomy because again, this blood is not healthy for you. Mm -hmm. You can be on medication for the rest of your life to put your period on hold and all. And I asked him, can we try a laparoscopy, which is the holds? Mm -hmm. He said, he wants me to know that every laparoscopy has a chance of leading into a laparotomy. Mm. And I told him, I said, my body's tired. Like I'm so tired. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I can do that again. And he said, well, he just wants to be honest with me. And I said, okay, I want to think about it. And we left a week later. I told my husband, I want to have another surgery again. And he's like, are you sure? I said, I'm positive. Mm -hmm. I want to try everything humanly possible. So tomorrow I have no regrets of what if, you know? Right. And so we called the professor and we went back and I asked him if he can assure me that he would do everything, you know, humanly possible with a laparoscopy, which if it didn't work, then we can turn into a laparotomy. And he said, yes. Mm -hmm. So we fixed the date for the surgery. And then I went back and I remembered been wheeled into that theater and while they were prepping for the first time, I just wanted to get off the bed and run away. Mm-hmm. I, I yeah, just had exactly. an unrest in my, in my spirit, you know, yeah. but then I stayed and, you know, before I knew it, they administered the anesthesia and then I dozed off. And I remembered when I gained consciousness before I opened my eyes, the first thing I did was touch my belly to try and figure out if it was a laparoscopy or a laparotomy. Uh-huh. And when I saw it was a laparoscopy, I was like, thank you, God. Yeah. You know, I was so yes. happy because the healing process is a lot easier. And yeah, he came to the, um, the, the ward that evening to tell me it went well, but it was very difficult. And they had to wait for a uro- urologist because they tried. So that they were sure that they would not tamper with my kidney or my my bladder and other things Mm -hmm. and that, but he's happy with the result. And for now he would leave the catheter for, for, for a month. So I said, okay. And then we were discharged three days later. The catheter was in there for a month. I came back to see him every week. After a month, he extended it again by two weeks. And the day he took out the catheter, they immediately inserted an IUD and i remember having my period flow i was so excited like i'd never been excited in my life to have my period like after that surgery like when it was flowing out i was so happy and yeah the first three months it flew normally and after that it began to become like spotting mm. and so i went back to the hospital and i told him the 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 the, the, the intensities is like reducing and he said yeah like a normal cervix is about six millimeters or something and what I have now is about one or two millimeters so it can never perform the job of a cervix
1: yeah
0: I was also told that when we were ready to try to get pregnant they would have to monitor me every week or two weeks to check Vagina swabs, make sure I don't have an infection. Because if I do, then they would have to treat me. I have to be on bed rest because the hole they created can't serve as a cervix, which means that the weight can probably lead to a tear. Right. So then, yeah, I said, OK. And then after, I think, four or five months, my period gradually stopped completely. Okay. So it wasn't flowing out again. Yeah. And I remember by the six months we went to the fertility specialist in the same hospital to prep me. So she just wanted to check so we can start my IVF treatment and then they transfer an embryo. Mm -hmm. And when we went, she was checking and she's like, oh, my God, you have a cyst on both ovaries like you have cysts. And she now went to my previous records and she's like, you've never had a cyst. So, you know, why now? And I just sat down there again. I was so helpless. And when we left, I told my husband. I said, "It's like for every point we move forward, like we then move a hundred steps back." Oh, exactly. And I was just frustrated because we couldn't move on with with um yeah the, yeah the 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 IVF medications because oh they gosh. said the cyst has to clear. Right. So,
1: so was this yeah, the point, I, Ajima? Where you wrote in your email, you know, I became acutely aware of my reality, and then it came to me: it, it's over. I'm never going to get no. pregnant and have a baby by myself. So this was not. You're not there yet.
0: No, but we're almost there. Okay. So, so yeah, when I left, I, I still wanted to try, and I remember I had my professor have an interview on the radio. Who was the first professor in Belgium to do a uterus transplant? So. I asked him on that day that can they then do a uterus transplant for me? And he said, for now, they are only considering women born without a uterus because with me, by the time they take out the uterus, I also have a scar tissue Mm -hmm. and the body can reject the uterus as much as it reject, like it's an organ transplant. So since I already have a uterus, he wouldn't even want me to risk a uterus transplant. Mm-hmm. But I think the turning point for me was my husband and I went, uh, yeah, we had the, our um, eye checkup and we went to the doctor. And uh, my husband, like the doc, the, I, I think they call them the ophthalmologist or something. Mm-hmm. His dad was also an eye doctor. And he performed my husband's surgery, I think five or six times while he was a kid and growing up. And now the dad is retired. So my husband asked that doctor, how is your dad doing? And he said, oh, he's fine, enjoying retirement and everything. So he then asks my husband, do you know my sister is also a doctor, like an eye doctor? And my husband said, no, I never knew. And I innocently said, oh, wow. Does any of your kids want to be like, want to follow in your footsteps? And he just looked at me and he said, Unfortunately, we never had kids. We got married late in our early 40s. My wife had endometriosis after several tries and surgeries. I decided her life was more important than having a baby. And at that point, it broke my heart because I knew how sensitive it was to me when people ask that question, like mm-hmm. going through my journey. Right, exactly. And I just had tears in my eye and I was like, how insensitive can I be? Like, why would I even ask that question? And then I told him if it's any consolation, like this is what my husband and I are currently going through. And he said, I'm not a gynecologist, but of course I trained as a doctor before I specialized in this field. And I can tell you that you can't keep twisting the hands of fate." Mm-hmm. And so that was the turning point for me because Belgians are not like open. They're very closed. And it's a professional relationship we had. Mm-hmm. Right. And while he was talking, I just had tears and goosebumps. And immediately we stepped out. I told my husband, I said, I'm done.
1: Yeah,
0: And he's like, I don't understand. I said, that was God speaking to me. Uh, like, it just seemed like a normal conversation, but what are the odds and chances that this conversation would come up? And I said, I'm done. And he looked at me and he's like, but you've been through so much because you want to do this. I said, yes, but I'm done. And I was just crying in front of the office. He just hugged me. And then he told me, okay, okay, okay. We're done. And so, yeah. So that was the turning point for me. Okay.
1: I'm so sorry that you went through all of that. Um, But yeah, yeah, I, I feel like sometimes you have those moments where you have conversations and it's almost like, this conversation was meant to be, like you were meant to have that conversation in that very moment with that doctor. So tell me about the next part of your story, which is when your sister-in-law offered to be your surrogate. How did how did that happen?
0: Okay, so early on in the journey, like when I went back home and I cried to my mom and everything, my mom wanted to be my surrogate, but then my mom is in her mid fifties, mm. So I didn't want to put her in, at risk. And then my elder sister offered, she's my stepsister. And then um, my younger brother, my two, I have two brothers, two younger brothers from my mom. And then they offered that their wives would help. Now, my immediate younger brother just got married and they don't even have kids at that point. Mm-hmm. They didn't have kids. And I said, no, you can't tell her to give me a child when she hasn't given you one. Right. And then my youngest brother now says, okay, my wife would do it. And I said, no, like it's too close to home. That's one, two. I don't want anybody to tell me, oh, I gave you that. You couldn't do this for yourself. And so we never accepted it. Right. Mm -hmm. But after I decided to go for surrogacy, I don't call my brother and I said, Is that offer still on the table? Because we explored America, but then we couldn't afford it because the fees are like huge. And again, if, for example, if I was in America or in the UK and this happened, the hospital will say, we're going to pay you out or uh, we're going to pay for the surrogacy or something. But in Belgium, it's not like that. Like doctors are like demigods and patients like us who You know, medical errors are committed on, are made to feel like the victims while the doctors are like the saints. Right. So unfortunately, that's the sad reality. Like my case happened in 2017. At first, they didn't accept it as a medical error because they claimed there's no difference between a cervix and a fibroid. And yeah, yeah. Until date, like we're in court, and they don't even want to settle because they said, Oh, I have fibroids and I was already sterile from the beginning. So for them, um, no error was made. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so then we couldn't afford surrogacy in America because the cost is huge. In Europe, it's altruistic. You have to find a close family or friend. Again, I never grew up here. So I don't know anybody here that can offer to do that for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my husband has a sister who we asked, and she said no. She doesn't have kids of her own, and she's not like she she's not interested in getting pregnant. Which, um, again is understandable. Like not everybody wants to be a parent or wants to experience pregnancy. And so yeah, I called my brother, and then he said, yes, they wanted they did. No, he said. I can't ask her at this point because she just gained admission in Belgium and she was moving to Belgium to study for her master's. He said, it's going to look like we, like our family cajoled her because we wanted to use her, right? Mm. So he said, he's sorry. He doesn't think it's the right time to have the conversation. And I said, I understand. And I think two weeks later, he called me and he said, he spoke to her about it. And um, she said, that she was shocked. We never asked her. Like she, she felt that we didn't regard her as family enough, and that she said she was more than happy to do it for me. And so I was excited. My husband was excited. She then moves to Belgium to study, and then we went around hospitals, and no hospital will take her as a surrogate because Why? I'm Nigerian and she's Nigerian, and they were worried for the safety of the child. oh wow and I yeah and I found that really really funny and perplexing because I'm Nigerian and I turned out just fine and my child Imani will always be half Nigerian half Belgian right like they can take that away from her and so and and she took um splitted her masters into two years because she wanted to do everything for us and then leave to go back, be with her kids. Because at the time, her daughter was almost two and her son was almost three. So they were still very young when she moved here. And um, so then we went back to the doctor or the hospital who made the error. And the doctor said, OK, um, we're going to do this for you guys. So then we started my IVF treatment. It went perfectly well. Mm hmm. We had embryos. Um, we had eight embryos saved. Wow. Yes. I think they, they got 23 eggs all fertilized. By the third day, 18 were growing perfectly. Mm-hmm. By the fifth day, they called us to say they had eight good embryos. So wow. because the number was good and the quality was good, they saved the best. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. my sister-in-law then starts her medication for embryo transfer. And then a week before the embryo transfer, he called us to say the hospital said they are not going to transfer the embryo into her. Why? And no reason was given, no reason till date. We wrote to them. We went to the Umbest department, the Umbest woman. They said they would get back to us. No reason was given till date. That's infuriating. Yes.
1: Yes. You must have been enraged. Yes. Yeah.
0: I was enraged. I... I, I tried to go to the media because you know mm-hmm. Um I, yeah but then they shared our story but then some some politicians and people who could make change were like there are a lot of children who need adoption we don't have to have our baby we can adopt oh wow and that also nope. did hurt my feelings because it's really frustrating and infuriating when they tell. Couple struggling with infertility to adopt. Like, there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with wanting your biological child, and I mean, there are a lot of children around the world who need homes. It, why does it have to be people struggling with infertility that should adopt? Every Amen to that.
1: To Amen to that. Yes, and it's also it's not easy to adopt. So for people to say just adopt, it's so clueless and it's so infuriating. So I agree. Yeah. With you there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So. I contacted one of the doctors we saw in Nigeria and I said, okay, can we come home and do the IVF treatment and everything? And he says, yes, but we have to find out if we can have the baby in Belgium. Because then again, in Belgium, the surrogate is the legal parent of the child, even though, even if it's a gestational surrogacy. Mm-hmm. And it's in most of Europe. And if she's married, then she and her husband are the legal parents, even though it's mine and my husband's DNA. Mm-hmm. So there are couples with cases in court in Belgium where the surrogate changes her mind and will not give back the child.
1: Yeah, and there's yeah. nothing
0: you can do about it. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah. So then we went back to the doctor who made the error and we said, okay, if we go to Nigeria and we do this, this idea, this, this whole process, can we come back and have the baby? He said, yes. They can't kick people out of a hospital. So then I start my IVF medication in Belgium, which he gave me, and then I moved to Nigeria two days before the embryo extraction, mm-hmm. and then they extract and then they transfer the embryo into my sister-in-law. In fact, she asked that to be transferred um, because she was hoping that if the two stuck, then we wouldn't have to try like try again, right? Source for funds, yeah.
1: Okay, okay. So
0: then. We did that and it was success. It was a success on the first try. Wow. So on the day we went back to the hospital, they tested, it was successful. We then returned back to Belgium and yeah, we kept on going back to the same doctor since he did the IDF treatment. And he, he said he wanted to make sure he takes us through the journey because it would give him peace. And yeah, we had his personal contact and could call and go for everything. And, So So, after everything that
1: you'd been through, how did it feel that your sister-in-law was now pregnant? And was it with the two, the two embryos took or was it one?
0: One, one stock.
1: Gotcha. Okay. So how did that feel to hear that she was pregnant and that things were moving along in a healthy way? We were really
0: excited. I think my brother and my sister-in-law were sad when they realized it was one embryo and I'm a very emotional person. Uh-huh. And when my sister-in-law told my brother I was one embryo, he kept on worrying and calling if I was okay. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm so excited that we have one. Like a few months ago, we didn't even know we we're going to get to this position. So I'm more than grateful that I have one, right. you know. And, and at the point, I was even scared. I had an unrest in my spirit that if it was going to be two, it would cause her some complications. So I kept on praying And I'm like, God, please let it be the, if it's one, let it Mm -hmm. be one. If it's zero, let it be zero. Because I didn't want anything that would then affect her Mm -hmm. for wanting to help us, you know? Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I was okay. The pregnancy was perfect. Mm -hmm. In the first three months, she had the morning sickness. But after that, it gradually became okay. You know, for me, it was a bit challenging living in the same house with my surrogate because, every emotion she was going through or every feeling I felt helpless because there was nothing I can do, you know? And sometimes I felt, Oh, I wish I was going through this, 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 I was going through this on my own. But then apart from that, she made it easy. Sometimes she would send me videos of the baby like moving. Sometimes she would tell me to touch the baby's kicking. I kept on asking her, like, has the baby started kicking? Have she say no, it's just flutters now and things like that. So she was super, super supportive. Uh, of course, when she was moody or angry, it then affected me because, yeah, she's carrying my child. And like they say pregnant women are very hormonal. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it felt like I was working a bit on eggshell. But in general, I think it was a very good relationship. And I would say like we had, Complete, like um, we we I wouldn't say we had a lot of issues to be honest. It was Mm -hmm. easy, you know, and she made it really easy for me as well. And yeah, so I remembered by the eighth month she opted for cesarean because with her second baby she had a cesarean, Mm -hmm. and so she told them that um, she would prefer to have a general anesthesia, and they said they would prefer to give her an epidural. And now she wasn't comfortable with an epidural because with her kids, she had them with my mom. Cause again, my mom is a nurse and a midwife. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in Nigeria, like when you have a baby, your mom comes to stay with you for the first three months to teach you, you know, how to take care of the baby and be there to support, you know? That's so, so awesome. She went, I love that. Yes. 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 It, it, we call it Omugo. So it's a tradition. So okay. she went to my mom instead of her mom, because my mom is a nurse and a midwife. So it made it easier. And during all her births, my mom was in the hospital. So my mom never let her collect, like take epidural, because she said if anything goes wrong, then, then she's screwed, you know. Um, so I remember when they insisted she takes the epidural, and then they said, oh, if, if the baby doesn't cry or is not awake, then they have to put the baby in the NICU. Mm-hmm. And she was like, okay, she will take the epidural because God forbid something happens then it means that all this was for nothing. Right. And I asked her, I said, are you sure you want to do that? She said, yes. And so we left, we came back a day before the birth just for prep and checking and everything. And I mentioned to the midwife, she's not comfortable with an epidural. And the midwife said, oh, don't worry, it's going to be fine and everything. And so we left and the next day we came, they prepped her. They took her into the theater before me, before my husband and I. And they prepped her. And when we came, the first thing she told me was the epidural was so painful. Mm. Um, and I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm sure it's nothing. And so the baby came. And uh, they. I hear that baby. baby. I hear her in the background. Yeah, she's, it's the monitor. So she's crying, but she Aww. would sleep off soon. Yes. It's,
1: so it's it's her bedtime monitor. for her.
0: Yes, it's better. And I have she to tell
1: to our listeners I did get to see a little glimpse of your gorgeous <laughs> little girl. She came on screen <laughs> and said, "Hi, and she's so cute." <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So, so so the baby did did come, obviously, cuz she's uh, how many 17, 18 months now? She's
0: 17 months
1: now. Okay. So but yeah. unfortunately something another medical error happened with your sister-in-law, it, right? So tell me what yes. happened.
0: Yes. Yes, so Again, they insisted she took the epidural, and in the morning, like so, after the they took out the baby, they handed the baby over to me, and I told them to hand her over to my husband because if there was one thing I didn't want to do was let my sister-in-law feel alone, and like she's giving us a baby and our attention is all there, so my husband left with Imani, while I stayed back with with Susan mm-hmm. and. Yeah, so I called my brother. They spoke while she was being stitched, and then we went to the recovery room. And then we called family. We were excited. Then we went to the room after she was okay from the recovery room. You know, she laid down. We were, you know, chatting and calling family and friends, Mm -hmm. excited. Mm -hmm. The next morning, the nurse came and said, She has to try to stand, you know, and she said, Yeah. Mm, she will but her legs feel weak and he said okay he came he took out the epidural and said she should rest in an hour he will come and help her stand 30 minutes later she came and she said I should help her stand so I tried to lift her up and she and I her weight just pulled me down but she didn't fall she was squatting on her knees and so I kept on pressing the emergency and it mm-hmm. came and he tried to lift her and she felt like a log of, like a stone. She was oh so God. heavy.
1: Yeah.
0: And we had to, he had to call more people. And then they came and they put her on the bed. And then he called somebody else, like the anesthesiologist and other people. And they came and they were asking her to lift her legs. She was lifting, but then it gradually stopped. And then they tried to hit with like different things to prick her with like needles to see if she has feelings and gradually the feelings left and
1: so sorry she she was paralyzed
0: she's paralyzed now it's almost two years yeah she can't pee or poop on her own
1: oh my goodness
0: that's just she's she's paralyzed like we wanted this child so bad. We prayed for 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 Imani. We even gave the child a name before we knew how we were going to become parents. You know, mm-hmm. I have her name tattooed on my left wrists for mm-hmm. days in which I was down to remind me that if I gave up, it meant I gave up on on this child. Mm-hmm. So, but if we knew that it was going to lead to susan being in this situation i wouldn't have started the journey of i course, i love yeah. imani so much but at the same time she reminds me of susan's situation right you know like mm. they took away my ability to to be a mom to, to to experience pregnancy you know now they're taking away my ability to fully be present like be a mom to my child you know, because constant and, reminder of what happened to Susan. Yes, but apart from that, the first two weeks or even months was difficult. I resented the child,
1: mm-hmm. I couldn't
0: bond with her because of Susan, right? And we didn't pay a dime for this, right? It's somebody who helped and it made me question my faith in humanity my faith in God. Like if there's a God, how can somebody help? I think this is the biggest sacrifice someone can, can make. Mm -hmm. Like she left her kids, her husband, you know, to help. And she's in this situation.
1: Yeah. You so eloquently in your email that you wrote to me, you said she walked into the hospital, have the baby and left Uh in a wheelchair. And now the Hospital isn't taking responsibility. No, no, Nor they is claimed the it's an African bacteria. They said they it was right.
0: her. an African bacteria.
1: An African bacteria. Okay. Yeah. Because she was yeah. carrying your genetics. Is that what they were trying to say?
0: Or I have no idea. Before you leave Nigeria to Belgium to study, you have to go through series of tests. And you have to have, and they pick the hospitals. You have to have those tests before they would even grant you a visa or before you can submit a visa application. So for them to come and say she has an she's been in Belgium for almost at that time for over a year so it's really absurd right mm-hmm. And what is the name of the bacteria till date they haven't given us they just say the bacteria does not look like a bacteria that is in Europe it looks like a the DNA is like a bacteria from Africa. Wow! They tried to blame it on malaria, on tuberculosis. They checked; she had none of those. How is Susan doing today? Susan is very positive. She believes she would walk again. Mm-hmm. I remembered once my husband told her that I'm a mess, and she told me that I need to put myself together because the, this Imani needs a mom, and mm-hmm. she doesn't want that all she did is in vain, and. She's been, of course, she has had down times, you know, you walked into that hospital and then you walk out paralyzed, Mm -hmm. you know, she can't, she can't, she has no feelings. She's constantly on a wheelchair Mm -hmm. and yeah. And again, it's my brother's wife. It's not somebody that we paid, even if it's somebody that we paid to do this and we go our separate ways, it's still going to be a constant reminder, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, and again, if I say they've taken away my my they've taken away my ability to experience pregnancy now they take away my ability to or oh, yeah be a mom is because legally I'm not Imani's mom because if I had adopted Imani then Susan has to move back to Nigeria and she will not have the healthcare and the access that that she has here because here it's a it's it's like there are things have been put in place for um handicap or or um people of special needs right right so if she moves back to nigeria how does she cope she has a nurse coming home every day to help like give her a bath and 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 she goes for therapy and all and because my husband has been recognized legally as imani's dad it makes her the mother of a Belgian child, wow. which means that they cannot kick her out of Belgium gotcha. because she's the mother of a European citizen. So if I do adopt Imani today, then I take away Suzanne's rights for legally living in Belgium because her student visa right. is expired. Right. Right. So oh again, gosh. on paper, I'm not Imani's mom. And. Mm-hmm. I also worry, God forbid, if anything is to happen to my husband, would I ever be legally recognized as my child's mom? You know, but then again, it's a sacrifice I have to make because she also sacrificed so much for me. Like you see how you saw how Imani was with me. I'm her mom, but on paper or legally, I'm not her mom. You know, like. In last year, I traveled to Nigeria, but because we needed to arrange some documents for me to be able to travel with her, I couldn't. I had to go on my own because it was impromptu. So it's still very, very like it's still a complex situation. Suzanne's kids are still back in Nigeria and we're trying to find ways for them to reunite with her because they're still very young. Mm -hmm. She hasn't been to Nigeria since this happened. Wow. Her mom is of age and she hasn't seen her mom and her yeah. brother. And yeah, my brother is also, you know, it's been difficult for him as well. Right. Um. It's, it's, it's been difficult on the whole family.
1: Of course. It's of been, course. Yeah. And one and, thing you wrote is, you know, my sister-in-law's action is an act of love and selflessness. Mm-hmm. And she does not deserve yes. to be in the position she's no. in. I want to say no. though you know, this whole story, there's so much love with all of your family members helping each other out and being there for each other. So that's one thing that I know there's, it's so complicated and you guys have a long way to go and figure this all out, but I love that the love in your family really permeates everything else. So thank you for sharing that part of it too. You're welcome. Um, So you guys will continue to fight these, this insurance company and try to figure out the best possible care for her or what's, what's next for you?
0: For me, it's absurd that this happened to two family members in the same hospital. Right. And nobody think, nobody felt that it was necessary to call us and sit and have a conversation with us. Now, again, like they felt that, and they said it to our face that we're trying to extort them of money, right? But no amount of money can give me the ability to carry a child. No amount of money will give Susan back her legs, her feelings. She might be able to walk again, but she might, she would never be able to have those feelings back. Her poop and her pee is being taken out manually every single day, you know? And I remember when this happened, they moved her to the Corona floor, claiming she had Corona, which she didn't. And even after they tested and tested and she was negative, they said they didn't have any other room in the hospital to transfer her to, which made us feel like they wanted her to get, like to be infected with Corona so that they can claim that that's what affected her nerves. Right. Because, and again, I forgot to add, the doctor who gave her the, 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 the epidural is a resident. Like you cannot put me in this situation and then somebody comes to help and then you pick somebody who is learning the job to give my it's an epidural is a delicate, delicate um procedure. Of course. And yeah. Yes, some people have to learn, but then there has to be somebody supervising. The doctor supervising said she was there, but she didn't have her gloves on. And even after Suzanne cried of pain, they told her to calm down. They are trying to do this right. You should know that something is off, right? You cannot be right. a resident to do a heart perform a heart surgery like this is a delicate situation, right. and knowing fully well our family history with that hospital, it's one thing to make a mistake because we're all humans and we all err and we all make mistakes, but to not accept your mistake and treat us like we're animals or we aren't human beings is unacceptable. I remembered when the story went viral in Nigeria, mm-hmm. the hospital through their lawyer and the lawyer representing the hospital and the insurance contacted us to threaten to take us to court if we don't stop publicizing the story. Mm-hmm. And we replied him and said, "You cannot, you cannot ruin our lives and then take away our voices. You want to take us to court? By all means, take us to court." They also threatened to take Suzanne to court for not paying medical bills. You can't paralyze somebody and insist that the person pays medical bills. And again, in Belgium, you cannot take them to court until you find a doctor who says a medical error was made. And these laws are so archaic and wicked and inhumane Mm -hmm. in a developed country, even in Nigeria, Mm -hmm. like this would not happen you know and for me it's not just about us it's about people before us that they've silenced it's about people coming after us if two family members can have rare two rare situations in the same hospital then it tells you that there are a lot more people mm-hmm. and we've we've come across people like on who published their story who we've tried to contact to see if we can raise our voices together because this shouldn't be happening the Cameroonian contacted us. His sister went into that hospital in 2015 or 16 for an eye surgery. She mm-hmm. came out blind oh and she's God. currently yeah. in a whole home in Belgium. So there are right. more stories, right. but people are scared because they don't know their rights. A lot of people told me, oh, if you fight this, they're go- they not going to give you the citizenship. And I'm like, they should keep the, the citizenship. I'm, I didn't drop from a tree, like I'm Nigerian and I'm always, I've always been proud of where I come from. You cannot like ruin our lives and then expect me to keep quiet. And again, it's not just about us. Like nobody should go through what we've been through. It's been a living hell. Like we just try to find like joy in the little things, like in our daily lives. Like some days you wake up on a good notes and other days you wake up sad and 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 you know you know and then for Susan Susan is a super strong person right she hasn't for once shown any form of resentment towards Imani even on days she has bad days Imani enters her room and she just begins to glow i honestly don't know how she does it and i i don't think she deserves what she's currently going through
1: absolutely another thing
0: is if they had paid you know if not not pay us money, but pay. We move her to probably Mayo Clinics in uh, in America, or even to Ability Lab, which were hospitals we researched, who treat like special cases like this. And for me, the longer it, it takes, the 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 lesser her possibility of, of 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 getting back on her feet. So we don't have time. It's not like me who I can't carry a pregnancy, and we can find the option of a surrogate. But now Susan has to depend on people for the rest of her life. Like how does she survive? How does she take care of her kids? How does she, you know, for me, it's a priority that I make sure that they make sure that she's well taken care of for the rest of her life. Even if it takes a year, even if it takes 10 years, because in Belgium, like this kind of cases can drag for five, 10, 15 years in court, and Mm -hmm. then they frustrate you until you give up. But for me, I I can assure you that I would never give up. I think the least I can do for Suzanne is to fight, so she has the closest to a normal life, uh, like the closest, like to live a normal life as possible. Like right. that's one thing I have to do because I think it will give me closure. I think it will also let me also like I, I won't live with so much guilt. And and all because like, and, and we live in the same roof under mm-hmm. the same roof. So I see her every day. Sometimes she has these nerve pains. She's in pain. She's yeah. crying. You know, it's it's oh just gosh. so much to deal with. I you do. know.
1: Thank you guys so much for listening and thank you to Ajima sending so much love to you and your sweet family. I'm really happy we got to share her story and I hope you guys uh, listened to it and learned from it. And I also wanted to tell you guys as usual about Fertility Rally, which is a safe space. It is a community filled with more than 400 women globally. And we've got four support groups a week. We have three private Facebook groups. We have a whole website full of content and videos. We do IRL events. Our next Fertility Rally Live is coming up in October, which is our all-day event. And bringing together of the fertility community's brightest voices and experts and inspiration. It's just a great day. So mark your calendars for that. It's on October 22nd. But I also want to let you guys know that if you want to join fertility rally, we open up again on September 1st, we have monthly or annual packages, memberships, and we are happy to have you become part of our fam it is such an incredible community. Everybody is there to help each other out, cheer each other on, answer each other's questions, advocate for each other. It's really become unreal. So don't miss out. If you are in this journey, if you are in the shit, you are not alone. Come and check out Fertility Rally on Instagram at Fertility Rally or check out our website, fertilityrally.com. You can always DM me with questions and I hope to see you guys soon. Thank you so much for listening.